Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live, the podcast that shares real life lessons from real life people. We're incredibly fortunate to speak to so many inspirational people from around the world. And as ever, we're delighted that you've chosen to join us to listen, to learn and share. I'm joined as usual by my pal, Alan. How are you doing, Alan? Yeah, good. Thanks, Lewis. And we're proud again to wear our Tsunami products. Tsunami is the number one choice for eco sportswear. And I'm really excited by today's guest, and she will certainly talk about the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses. And if you've listened to our shows before, you know that we're keen on hearing your feedback. Please do get in touch with us. Uh, You'll find our episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other podcast platforms, on IGTV, uh, YouTube, and we're also vocal on Twitter. You can find all our work at theinfinitelearners.com. Be better educators, be better humans is what we're all about, and we're ready to get cracking. Let's go. Yeah, get your pens and papers ready, guys. There's going to be some gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. So Dr. Laurie Kerner has been in the field of education for over three decades, and she spent the first 26 years of her career as an elementary school teacher, having taught every grade. She's a Fulbright specialist scholar and served as an adjunct professor for special education at several universities in New York. Dr. Kerner is currently the Executive Director of Curriculum, Instruction and Professional Personnel in a public school district on Long Island in New York. And her research has been centered on educating the whole child so they get best equipped to meet the maximum academic potential. And Dr. Kerner is a mum of four and a bold child advocate. And she's presented across the US regarding innovation in education and has recently written a book called Actually I Can. And that's our starting point, Laurie. Welcome to the show. Tell us about that inspiration for the book. Well, thank you so much for having me tonight. Um, so the inspiration for the book uh, is basically, it's based on everything I've experienced through my time in, in life uh, and, and in, in education. Um, and I thought it would be uh, fun and uh, hopefully inspiring to other people to, to write down my, my thoughts and ideas and uh, you know, we rise by lifting others. So I, I felt that if other people um, could read the book and find their own inspiration and empowerment, what a what a what a wonderful world it would be. So, yeah, you've you've just mentioned there one of your lovely little quotes that you go through in your book: "Rise by lifting others." I like I like the one that you've got: "Create the child for the path, not the path for the child." Do you want to explain a little bit about that one? Sure. Thank you. I. You know, in American education, we've gone through so many changes. Um, I'm curious to hear about, about education where you are as well. Um, but in American education, um, you know, we, we did go through a time where we were standardizing curriculum and standardizing assessments. And I, I started to see the most um, excited, creative children just um, breaking down a bit and, and, and developing anxiety uh, challenges. And I, I saw the most... Um, creative, talented teachers contemplating retirement. And I, 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 I started to think about what I could do uh, to help make positive change in American education. And so create the child for the path means allow children uh, to find themselves and to find their own passions and talents and, and create the pathway that, um, that will suit them uh, well without predetermining a path for them, so. That's very much down the line of uh... William Gardner's work, isn't it, about trying to yes. find out how children are clever, not how clever the children are. And, exactly, uh, exactly. Very much the creativity line around Sir Ken Robinson's work and everything like that. 
tell me how important that sort of creative self-awareness for children is and why it's something that you've chosen to, to essentially write a large swathe of your book around. Well, you hit, you, hit a, you hit the nail on the head a little bit with Ken Robinson, May He Rest in Peace. Um, I was a huge admirer of Sir Ken. I actually had dinner with him one night and uh, we had the most magnificent conversation about uh, child creativity and curiosity and allowing children to, to uh, figure out uh, who they are and, and, and what their place in the world uh, you know, really is. And so the basis for the book is, is to inspire educators and, and parents and anyone who loves children um, to, to help them find, uh, find their way. Uh, by asking questions in the way that you said before, you know, the question isn't how intelligent are you? It's how are you intelligent or how are you creative, handy, um, you know, mathematical. So uh, I, I agree with you that, uh, that we need to shift the, the, the questions that we pose to children and, and, and let them know that they're more than a, a test score. Um, or, or a standardized test score or an assessment, right? Everybody has their their own abilities and their own talents, multiple intelligences, so. Can, can we go a little bit more into that, Laurie? Because I watched that Operation Varsity Blues last week on Netflix that knew about the college scam, the, the guy who uh, did the side doors and back doors and whatever doors to get into the rich kids into universities. Yeah. Now, it just highlighted for me that the, the, the shockiness of everything being based around scores and then the way that, that society is so heavily biased towards the, the richer students getting into university. But we still need some form of assessment, don't we? Or accountability yes, or scores to get into university. Now, I, I don't personally agree with all that anyway, but... I do see that there has to be a measure. So how can we bring that together and, and have this holistic approach, but also have a, a way of getting into university? Right. I think that's a really great question. And assessment is, is, a, is a valuable part of education, isn't it? We need to assess our students to, to, to see where they are in their education. Um, but, but I think that it's really important that we look at what types of assessments we use with children. So a diagnostic, um, formative assessments, summative, portfolio, performance-based, project-based. There's so many different ways to determine student acquisition of knowledge and skills. Um, and so looking outside of those standardized, in where we live, their state assessments, um, we really need to become more creative and allow children to to show what they know um, in, in the best way that they possibly can, is, shouldn't we? Um, well, without a doubt, Laurie, but will universities change their outlook? Because that's the, that's the problem, isn't it? We can all have yeah. these wonderful ideas and we spoke to guys who, who are involved in the Green School Initiative in, in Bali and New Zealand and they totally agree in this philosophy, but it's the universities. And if they don't change... It just has that cascading effect back through and nothing changes, does it? You're absolutely right. We need to look at the, the profile of our accepted students in the university, right? So some of our universities have begun to change what their, their profile of a student looks like. So they're moving away from those standardized test scores uh, in the states, it's SAT, ACT, 
um, and they're moving more towards that holistic component, you know, uh, character, communication ability, a cooperation, collaboration, a curiosity, um, conflict resolution. Uh, I call it navigating the seas, right? Um, so that holistic approach to, to who you are and what you are able to do, your ability and your potential, as opposed to your, your summative score. It's interesting at the moment with the, the GCSE situation in England and through international schools, and there's an assumption that, um, and, and this, this isn't necessarily the view I have, but this is a, a view that I, th I think from, from reading around the subject is, is something that's starting to catch is that there isn't a trust in teachers to be able to give uh, an honest grade to a student. There's, there's a worry or a concern that seems to be underlying that teachers can't give a grade to students that is fair and that is um, moderated across the world on the same exam on the same syllabus. Now that's been compounded at the moment because we can't sit exams in the way that we normally would because of COVID. So rather than schools maybe being asked for evidence to create grades, um, there's also exam-based assessments that have been brought in as a way to sort of moderate. So even though there isn't an exam, there still is necessarily some sort of exam that creates a lot of information for students to look at around a subject that can sort of recreate the same kind of assessment as an exam can, even though there's probably arguably a real opportunity here to, to have a go at grading a student based on the evidence that you've seen as a teacher over the past two, three years, however long the course is, without that need for an end of exam assessment. So even with the opportunities that we've got at the moment to take into account project work, portfolio stuff, to take into account formative and summative assessments as we've gone along, we're still not using it. We're still not taking that opportunity in the GCSE system. And, and we've seen that internationally as well as in the UK as well. What are exam boards? What are universities? What are colleges so scared of? Is it the lack of control? Is it the lack of quality of teaching that they're questioning in different areas? From your point of view, what do you see as the huge barrier that's stopping, like Alan said there, this idealistic world where everybody's assessed in their own sort of way and, and therefore everybody's got an opportunity to express themselves in the way that they want? But you, you said a few things that I, that I took note of here. Um, first, first of all, um, with COVID, things have changed. Uh, and I, I believe that they will continue to change in years to come. Um, and so, yes, it's true. We haven't had the opportunity to assess students in the way that we always have. And I, I think that's the answer to your question directly. I think universities, and, and I, I don't wanna speak for anyone. Uh, it's just my, my opinion. Uh, I think universities, you know, maybe have this, this notion that, well, this is the way it's always been done. And so this is the only way we really know how to do it, right? Uh, looking at children across the board and comparing these, these scores uh, based on these standard assessments, um, that's been the norm. And so change really pushes us out of our comfort zone, doesn't it? So when we start to make change, it, it is a trickle effect. And we need to, to share with, um, with public schools or private schools, well, we're changing our, our admitted profile uh, of a student. And so now, what are you going to be doing in your system to assist us? So it, it's this whole connected um, system of change. Um, but I agree with you that we have a real opportunity um, in our hands right now uh, to, to begin to make futuristic change uh, and move it in a direction where 
we really can um, cre create a way to look at the whole child and, and, and what they have been able to do over their time in education, including community service, presentations, innovations, um, you know, real world authentic opportunities and, and potentially present those to a university as, hey, this is what I have to offer. This is kind of in the same way that we do on a job interview. You know, this is who I am, this is my profile, and here's what I have to offer to you. So I think this is a really exciting time in education um, on the heels of a very unfortunate situation, but I think we need to grab it and, 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 and run with it. And you, you highlighted earlier that importance around soft skills, um, and it's a phrase that I, I know I don't particularly like, I haven't found one that, that's used more widely at the moment than that, but you talked about conflict resolution and collaboration and a few other things. How, how do we begin to measure those and, and present students' abilities in those without, without exams and without assessments in a very formal and traditional way? Great question. And so the, the term soft skills, I, I prefer uh, to use essential, essential skills, because I, I believe that they really are essential to student success, um, to successable citizens, actually. Um, but how do we measure it? I, I don't I don't know that I want to necessarily move in that direction where we're measuring communication, collaboration, cooperation. I, I think it has to be, um, you know, I, I don't think there's a standardized way to assess that. And I don't think we, we should. I think it should be an individualized um, synopsis or presentation of what each person brings to the table because everyone has a skill set to bring to the table. And so how do we move society into this, this, this process of accepting each other for what we bring instead of measuring us against each other or next to each other? Yeah, I, I just picked up there and it's almost like you've got, a, would have a digital portfolio, isn't it? Of where you could demonstrate how you've, you've uh, uh, developed these essential skills or citizenship skills or good human being skills. You almost need evidence. Don't see if you've played for your football team, you've got like you've got your videos, you're playing football, and you what you've learned from that reflections. That that yeah. is almost one way. But would is it just easy for a university or or an, just to see right? There's there's a grade. That's it. And then the other bit takes too long, doesn't it? So it's just, a, is it a time thing? Is it just a, a functionalist approach over a, a socially critical approach? Is that, what, I, is that what happens? I think you pose a really important question. And, and in the States, we do have um, some organizations that have begun to create these digital portfolios that you mentioned, um, which actually assist children in logging um, their, their sports participation and their community service and, and video vignettes of, of what they have presented. So I think you're really onto something there with that. Um, I think that is a, a, a much bigger view um, of, of, of a student. Um, and yes, I think maybe it is easier to say, well, you know, what are your grades? Do you meet the mark? Okay, you meet yeah. the mark, so we'll let you in. But, but how many children and how many people have you met that have outstanding grades 
but then you put them in real world situations and they have a, a difficulty uh, problem solving or, or resolving you know, conflicts with other people or, or collaborating. Some of, the, some of the students I've had in, in my time with the highest grades um, prefer to work alone. And so that, that might not work well in, in the real world. So I, I really do think that, that you have a, a brilliant um, idea um, and, and I think we need to look at that and, and begin to, uh, to promote, to share uh, the, the change that we're really uh, sitting on right now. And how many times do you see that the opposite way around as well? You've got children with real world skills and the ability to hold conversations and to make friends and break friendships with empathy and with consideration and with compassion. But maybe their grades wise, they haven't done as well. We, we interviewed a guy called Jake Humphrey months ago, Alan, didn't we? And Jake Humphrey is a, a very successful broadcaster, sports broadcaster in the UK. He used to be a children's TV broadcaster previously to that. And he talks about how his exam grades were really poor, but his superpower is empathy. And he, and he feels and he, he asks the right question to be able to try and bring the emotion out of people. And I suppose that would be an example of what we're talking about here, right? I love that. I absolutely love that you brought that point up because yes, uh, there are so many students that, you know, maybe they can't make the grade uh, the way that society expects them to, but they have these amazing, wonderful skills that um, that will really bring them far, maybe farther uh, than the valedictorian or the, you know, the, the, the top students. So uh, it's a really great point. And what message are we sending to children if we say to them, well, you didn't make the grade. So those other skills that you have, you know, they really, they really don't count. Um, so I think we have to be very careful um, of the messages that we're sending to our youngest citizens. Um, as parents, Laurie, it, it's so hard, isn't it, as well? Because you end up falling into that trap or you, this is, you start looking at numbers and letters on a sheet of paper on a report rather than focusing on the child. And I'm as guilty as that as anybody. Um, can I just come back to a point from earlier? And I love this is we always done things that way. I like, I can't, that's the one phrase that I cannot abide by in any organization. We've always done it that way. And Lewis and I, we, we make a mission to go and have a change whenever we hear that, <laughs> that phrase. Can you, can you give us a really good example of when you've heard that and you've gone, you know what, that's <laughs> rubbish. I'm going to change that. <laughs> Well, it, it, it's kind of my life story, actually, you know, and, and I agree with you, Alan, when I hear that, well, this is the way we do it, I tend oh, to immediately oh. go in another direction. Um, yeah. So, you know, a, a, I think a classic example is when I was a teacher and, um, and we had this new system of uh, instruction, it was called Common Core, um, and it, it kind of came to town. And um, my colleague said, well, this is, this is how we have to do it. This is what they they're telling us to do. And, and I saw that the children weren't learning the way that they wanted us to teach. And so I closed the door and I, I, I kept teaching students and not the standards uh, that they were kind of pushing at, at, the, at the time. And I'm not saying that standards are a bad thing. Standards are a very good thing um, when appropriately implemented, right? So, um, so I'm with you on that when they say, uh, well, this is how we do it. Um, you know, I just immediately, the hairs, the hairs go up. And I say, oh, no, we don't, we don't really do it that way. We do it the way that we know works best for children. 
because children always have to be at the forefront of everything that we do, every decision that we make. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have an expression, Laurie, on, on our podcast that the context drives the narrative and, and every context is, is totally different. And to be expected to push one agenda or one method yeah. or one approach to learning is yeah. just so wrong. But once again, it's that functionalist approach that is then forced upon everybody because it's easier. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important that we, we remind each other um, that we remind our colleagues that, you know, if a child's not learning the way that we teach, then we have to change the way we teach to meet the way that they learn. So if they're not learning the way that we're teaching, we have to change our way. We can't expect the child to change. I and mean, we have to meet them where they are. So if they're a visual learner, we have to change the way we teach and use visual cues. And if they're an auditory learner, we have to make sure that we use uh, multi-modalities, right? Um, so I, I agree with you again. Um, so happy for this for this chat, actually, because there's so many commonalities here. Um, but yeah, we we uh, we can't force a, a, a standard way of teaching um, because everyone is so different. Even with my four children, each one is so different. And so when we look at that small group there, imagine a, a large population of children, right? How different uh, their their learning profiles are. Yeah. I know, Laurie, one of the things that you talk about, and it's just, just touching back on this idea of trying to measure children in a way that's standardised and that, that's examined and assessed, you, you use a, a phrase over scheduling of uh, children have often got too much in the schedule and there's no time for play. How important is that balance? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important. I think that COVID has proven to us and, and because I have sat with children in roundtable discussions, because I think their words are the most important words, um, and asked them, you know, how do you, how do you feel um, not having been able to play your, your, your scheduled sports? And of course, initially it was devastating, right? There was no dance, no, no baseball, no, no you know, uh, organized sports, no, um, you know, tag, tag football down at the field. But um, but as time went on and, and we were in lockdown and children were forced to, to learn from home and not do all of those things, I'm told from the children, well, you know, I really had time to get to know myself and I'm reading for fun again. And I really enjoy um, taking walks or sitting outside and just not having that. We have in America, we are very rush, rush, rush. We rush everywhere and, um, you know, throwing down the fast food and, and getting to the next appointment, the next game and the next, and, and, and so there are pros and cons, right? We want our children to learn to be a team player and be part of something bigger. But on the other hand, we have to be mindful that that downtime is so important to their social, emotional well-being and, and growth, that they have that time to self-reflect um, and figure out what they really want uh, from themselves, right? Uh, yeah, you're, you're totally right, Laurie. I mean, just just from a from a dad perspective, my my kids, who I've got twins aged eleven years old, they've they've really missed organised sport. They really it's like really affected them um, because that was almost their identity. They they got yeah. their identity through sport. How important is that identity then in having well being and, and and knowing yourself? I think it's, it, 
you make a good point when you say that their sports were their identity, yeah. because we see that a lot. And I agree with you, my own children as well. But how important is it to allow them that stop time to find other parts of themselves, other passions, other interests, other talents that widen um, their view of themselves and their identity? I agree. The only problem with that is being uh, video games. <laughs> I, that's true. <laughs> that is very true. And I think, you know, uh, we saw a, a huge uh, shift to that over-focus on video games during that, that, that COVID time. And um, it is important as parents and educators that we, we help our children to find the balance and we, we help them to monitor themselves. And, and I do it with my, with my own teens. You know, I, I remind them, we put a timer on and, and to, to kind of snap them out of that, that world that they go into, that, that video world. Um, it, it's hard though, Laurie, isn't it? Because when they're playing football or, or any sport and, and then it's, the session's finished and they come home, they're, they're happy to finish the session. They come home, they have their food. And, and my own children did it last night. They came in from swimming, they were starving. <laughs> they, they had their food, they were happy, really happy. You try and take them off fortnight after an hour or FIFA <laughs> or whatever it is, and it's a different reaction. They're angry. Yeah, they're, they're angry. angry. Yeah, they're angry. It, it's it's an addiction, isn't it? Yeah. It's an addiction, isn't it? And 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 we need to uh to bring that, I think, to their attention. See, look how angry you're getting right now. Do you do you see how angry we you know why and then we have to why do you feel that way? What's happening right now that's making you so angry that I'm asking you to detach from your game. And so you make a really great point. Um, but as parents, I think it's our responsibility to um, help them with that, that time management, that self-reflection, um, you know, and, and, and monitor the time. And it's not easy. It, it sounds a lot easier than it really is, right, in the moment. Not easy. Um, <laughs> I think, I think that's a really interesting one. I think that, that what's missing there when your Fortnite example is a punctuation point that makes people, like what Laurie referred to earlier, stop, take that stop time and pause and think, right, what am I going to do next? So the punctuation point at the end of your kid's swimming is the, the swimming instructor teacher tells them to get out of the pool and get changed. And there's a transition period there. They've gone from performing and being in a class to right now they're not performing. Now they're going home and it's something different. When you're scrolling on your phone and you read an article or you watch a video, there's another that pops up. When you're playing Fortnite and you finish a game, even if your mates have gone on, there's another three million people in the world that are still on and that want a game. When you're watching Netflix and you finish an episode, you know, we, we, we remember back in the day there was terrestrial TV and you finished episode, you had to wait a week for another one. Like, <laughs> what a ridiculous, what a ridiculous concept that is now, right? They'd never survive. They'd never survive. You know, you, that, that doesn't have to happen these days, does it? You just literally click next episode yeah. and off you go and you can sit and watch 12 in a row if you want. And I think that's where that difference is. There just aren't those punctuation points, like Laurie said, to take that stop time and think, right, what's right for me now? What am I going to do now? Where do I go now? Yeah, I think helping children um, plan it out, uh, you know, okay, so you want to play this video game now, but let's talk about what's going to happen. So you'll play the video game and at this point, uh, we're going to stop and then we're going to do this other thing, whether it's dinner or shower or go outside and ride your bicycle. And I think helping them work through that planning process um, will also help them in life, won't it? 
You know? Well, yeah, and that links us nicely to, to your book's uh, sort of area and idea around empowerment of, of, of especially women in leadership, but around empowerment as a, as a first sort of topic. Can you tell us why getting children involved in that decision-making process is important and, and, and how that can make a difference? My own children, you know, had always told me, and I, you know, two of my children are adults, and then I have two teens, and I, they, they would always say, you're always telling me what to do. You know, you're always telling me what to do. And isn't it true? We tell them yeah. what to do from the minute they wake up in the morning until the, the minute they go to bed at night. And so by stepping back and allowing them to make decisions and choices on their own, it, it is so empowering for them. And it, it helps to raise their self-esteem, their self-worth, their independence, and, and to know their own ability um, and to feel that, that confidence that I can. You know, I can, I can make these, these choices and, and sometimes they'll be really good choices and sometimes they won't be. And when they're not, I'll learn from those. And, and those are powerful moments, you know, you're laughing. I'm It reminds me of the film, my kids watched it the other week called Yes Day. Have you seen that film, Yes Day? Oh, it, it's literally where you're not, you're not allowed to say no. So your kids, <laughs> yes. kids can do whatever they want. It's like a yes day. And my kids are saying, can we have a yes day? Can we? I'm like, no. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe shift the paradigm and go, okay, you, you make those choices yeah. and then have a conversation afterwards. I say, well, do you think it was the right choice? Because you're right. We structure the hell out of our kids. Uh, and maybe this, this, this pandemic has given us a chance, as, we've, as Lewis has quite rightly said, to stop, have a look. And, and give them a chance to, to find themselves rather than yep. be structured all the time. Would you agree? Yeah, we, we, we call it helicopter, helicopter parenting here. Yeah, you know, totally. when, when, when the child has the ice cream cone and it starts to drip, we immediately, we go to wipe it for them, right? So what would be terrible if it, if it, if it dripped? And so we really <laughs> need to step back and say, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Allow them that, that opportunity to, uh, to, to be who they want to be, you know? Yeah, in international schools, Laurie, where we've worked, the, the, the helicopter parenting is the, the standard default model. And, and oh. <laughs> it is, it, it's very interesting to observe. And as a parent, obviously, it is almost you, you're wanting to provide those and scaffold so the kids don't fail. And but, but what lesson are we teaching? Failure there. How how important is, is failure in, in in bringing up kids? How important is failure? It's everything. You know, yeah. I, I, there's that saying that mistakes are proof that we're trying, right? So if we don't make mistakes, how do we know uh, that we're trying, right? So so we need to let our children fail, and it's it's painful, isn't it? It's painful. Oh, yeah. It's really painful. Good. But we we need to realize that these these failures and these, these, these life lessons are, are going to, to make our children more resilient, uh, global citizens. Uh, if we don't let them fail, then, then what's, what's going to happen when they, when they do go to college, where they, they are in their career uh, and they make a mistake? What, what, how will they react? They won't have any self-regulation um, skills to, to navigate through those, those types of situations, so. No, it comes back to the work of Carol Dweck as well. I'm sure you're very familiar on, Absolutely. on that. Absolutely. You, you, do, you do talk about that a lot in terms of growth mindset. How yeah. influential is that in, in just in, in your role as a leader? 
powerful question that you ask. Um, you know, uh, leadership uh, philosophies vary. Um, my leadership philosophy is uh, supporting other people uh, to help them uh, develop a growth mindset. Um, you know, not everyone has the same lens and not everybody has the same philosophy, but um, I think, you know, teaching people and, and teaching children uh, the power of yet, right? Well, I, ha I, I, I can't do that yet. Um, I, don't, I don't understand that yet. And so, so shifting that, that mindset to that, that growth mindset that you're talking about um, that Carol Dweck speaks of in her book is, is um, for me, uh, one of the most important things we can do uh, for the people that we serve um, and, and for the students. That idea isn't new, is it? Let's be honest. You know, I don't know if your mum or, or your grandma, my grandma used to say to me, Alan, you know, there's no such word as can't. You know, yeah. you can't you can't find can't in the dictionary. And I was like, well, that's a contradiction. But okay, there you go. I'll let you have it. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, in many respects, obviously that's correct. You know, it, that isn't the word. But the point being that you don't you don't admit to not being able to do something. You, you continue and you find a way around it. I read Matthew McConaughey's book over the Christmas break, Green Lights, which I thought was superb. And he talks about, it's a brilliant, he has such, he's such an eloquent guy and he, he speaks, uh, he writes so well around the story of his, um, of his dad telling him how to work a lawnmower. So the, the story goes, and it's a lot better in the book than I'll ever give it credit for. But essentially the, the gist of the story is the lawnmower doesn't work and he, and he tells his dad that the lawnmower is broken. And his dad says, no, 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 you're just having trouble with the lawnmower. And he goes and he fixes the lawnmower and says, you know, you never can't do anything is the message. There's always a way around it. You just need to be um, humble and humble enough to ask for help or to, to look at it from a different angle. And that's what we're getting at here, isn't it? Is that you, there's no point just saying, I can't do that. It's actually trying to find somebody that can support you or a way around it to be able to solve the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think it's really important to teach children to, to, to find their strengths to, to focus on their strengths because building off of our strengths will help, um, you know, build our weaknesses, if you will, right? So, so when we feel like we can't do something, we have to look at what we can do and kind of work that way uh, with that particular problem or situation. Um, how would that look in a, in a real life context, Laurie? Give us a maybe a, a leadership example or an example with children that you've come across. No, I, I feel like in, in a leadership example, it, it looks like, well, I'll never get that 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 teacher or that faculty member to to do A, B, or C. You know, she'll never understand and I'll, I'll never get through it. And so there's this negative language, right? This this language of misery, we call it. And so um to, to work with another leader and say, well, you know, what, what word choice can you use with that, with that teacher or that person to, to help them um, become more positive or, or become inspired? Like there's a reason behind every behavior isn't there. So our job as leaders is to find out, to peel back the curtain, find out the reason behind the negativity or the behavior um, in the same way that we do with children. Um, so, so I think that's what that's what it would look like in, in real life, um, helping people to navigate uh, through and, and, 
and getting the most out of everyone um, in our charge, right? So, yeah. oh, I'll never, she'll not, well, what words, how can you speak to her that would inspire her? How can you let her know that you value her? So working with people to, to use the proper word choice to build the people around them, that, that's, that's what it looks like for me. I was, I was, I'm, I'm studying leadership at the moment, Laurie, and some of those, some of those words that you use as your definition of leadership, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just use some of those. You, you define leadership as choices, mm -hmm. relationships, influence, empowering, encouraging, listening, valuing, inspiring. Would, would I be right in that they shape your leadership philosophy? And I'm interested in where you got that from and, and, and then how you then brought that together to your own philosophy. This is such a great conversation. I'm enjoying this so much because it's interesting to hear you say, I guess, did you get that from the book maybe? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's fun to listen uh, and, and hear what you have drawn uh, from the book. I, I, yes, 150%, that's how I define leadership. And, and the reason um, that I do is, is through my experiences, my own experiences. I spent 26 years in the classroom as a teacher uh, before I chose to uh, go back to school for administration. And so I learned a lot in that time um, when I was an unofficial leader without the piece of paper, because you don't need a title to be a leader, right? We've heard that I before, learned... Lewis, haven't we? We've heard that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was at NGA's bombs, wasn't it? Yeah. But um, you, you learn a lot about what you how you want to be, uh, and you learn a lot about what you don't want to do, don't you? Um, yeah. So I, I had a lot of time to observe, and I think that has been a huge asset for me as a leader, uh, that time I spent on the front lines there um, in the classroom. So, so Laurie, it's not read from a book. It's not a theory. It's not a model. It's more experiential. Is that right? Definitely experiential, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, so you then have developed your own style through years of experience and through study. So it's that combination as well. And then when you come to write that all down and, and you've got your book, tell us how the title was then inspired. I love that story of your daughter in London. <laughs> Which story? Which story? So how you got the title of your book. You know, it's so funny because um, I was in London with my daughter and we were shopping and I, I saw the, a T-shirt that said, actually, I can. And Kate said, oh, mom, you should you should definitely get that shirt because that totally describes, you know, who you are. But that was well before uh, the book was even uh, definitive uh, signed contract and it didn't have a title. And so when I was speaking to uh, my publishers, we went through several titles and uh, I said, well, how about actually I can because I am. And uh, Daphne said, that's it, that's, that's the one. And so that, that experience in London the year before was kind of a foreshadowing of what was to come. So it's, it's really magnificent to look back on that and say, wow, that's, that's really amazing that uh, that, that happened. But um, I, I titled it uh, that way because I, I want people to know that, um, you know, we're told so often through our lives, oh, you can't, you can't do that. And you'll, You'll never be able to do that. And, and I, I, I think it's really important for us to, to become empowered and, and to be able to say, actually, I, I can. 
and um, and watch. <laughs> It, so. it comes back to, to the to quote from Gandhi, Laurie, doesn't it? Where your words, thoughts, and actions are yep. all aligned. Would you, would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. You know, you, you, you receive what you give out, don't you? And, and, and so your, your, your thoughts and your manifestations come back uh, and, and bring you your, your highest outcomes there, right? So if you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, today's just going to be a terrible day. You know, what generally happens is it turns out that way because your behaviors then uh, follow along. But if you wake up and you say, I'm so excited because of this activity or this, this, this thing that I'm doing today, um, and it's going to be a great day, then it winds up being that way, doesn't it? Because you're, again, your behaviors and your actions bring the outcomes. So it's, it's interesting. I'd, I'd like to quote your book at this stage, Laurie. I think this is a really nice time to add this line in. To live a life filled with one's highest choices and brightest outcomes, one should always continue to inspire and empower, and in turn become inspired and empowered. And I think that's what you're talking about there, isn't it? You know, you, you go and you attack life and you have a positive mindset and you try and do the same for others. What does that look like, Laurie? On those tough days for you, when you do get out of bed and you can't be bothered and it's, you know, New York, it's minus eight, it's snowing, you know, the the, the cars are honking on the street and, and you've got a busy day ahead and, it, and it's not something that you want to be doing. What practical tips do you have on days like that? Yeah, and, and there are days like that, aren't there? There are. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... Um, kind of falling into that negativity is not going to get us anywhere, right? So I always try to remind myself, myself, pardon me, of, of the, the bright side and the blessings. If you focus on the blessings, um, they overpower, I think, the positive overpowers the negative. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if you get out of bed and you're not really looking forward to what your day has scheduled for you, you know, I think you need to shift your lens uh, to what you will enjoy. And that will definitely bring you to a better place. Um, you know, uh, we have to, we have to, we have one chance here, don't we? And so we have to make the most of every, every minute. And, and I try to live my life that way. Um, How do you shift that lens, Laurie? Do you have any practical things that you do that help you to achieve that? I do. I do. You know, sometimes I'll call, um, you know, one of my children on the way to work, um, call my mom, listen to music. Um, I, I think about the, 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 the victories and, and, and the accomplishments, the focus on what's going to happen at the end of the day, you know, dinner with the family, my husband. So those are my, my practices to, to try to just kind of jump over uh, the negative or, or things that we might not, you know, want to be doing and, and focus on the positive. And, you know, what do you do uh, to raise your spirits? Because I think it looks different for everyone. So what do you do um, when, you, when you, you know, are having a, a bad day to overcome? Yeah. I it is very contextualized, isn't it? Uh, like I said, there's no one way, there's no one pathway for everybody. What do you do, Alan? What do you do on them bad days? It's an interesting one, Louis, because it, it depends also on what that, um, what sort of thing that's triggered it as well. So it, it, 
it could be something where the kids have done and then I, I just need to, to get out of the house and go for a walk or go on my bike before, before I lose my temper. Or if it's a work thing, I'll then write... The, the classic one that we learned from our ex-boss was to write that draft email that you never send. Okay. I love that one. I absolutely love that Don't one. Don't press That's send. Don't press send. Very, very different to, to, to what's caused your angst. I think that's an interesting one. You can't have the same response compared to the situation. What about you, Lewis? Um, in interested. I think going for a walk is one for me. You just go and cool down and get your body moving. I think I always think more clearly when I'm in movement. I don't know if that, there's a scientific reason behind that. I'm not sure. It's not something I've looked in specifically, but... Walking is always good. And then, yeah, just talking, talking things through with people and trying to find some honest sounding board, you know, not, not necessarily somebody that just wants to agree with you. Sometimes somebody that's completely out of context that doesn't understand the situation you're talking about or the problems you're talking about. Sometimes people that are very aware of the context and are very aware of the situations and the problems that you're talking about. And I think a mixture of those. But for me, just reaching out, you know, the, the more that... Um, the more that I'm, I'm learning as, as I'm going, the more I'm realising that the more you need other people and you need their support and you need their opinions. And I love what you said, uh, and I, I agree, uh, exercise. And, and you were saying it earlier, Alan, getting up early in the morning, right? Uh, going for that walk. I, I drive down to the water and I, I missed that before. So thanks for reminding me, Lewis. I, I take a drive to the water. That's my peaceful place. Um, and just kind of decompress and 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 think and and reach out to your support system, someone you can speak to without judgment. Um, so all of these strategies are really important for people to hear. Um, and even just listening to each other, we're, we're reminding each other. And this is such a global connection, right? But it doesn't matter where you are. I think um, you know we have so much that we can you know share with each other and that we have in common. And I, I find it so fascinating, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point and it's so many common themes across our 40 odd podcasts and, and one of the themes I want to touch upon is a bit more of the struggles Laurie and a lot of our, our, our women speakers including my wife who's a, is a, a leader in education have suffered with something called imposter syndrome and I'm sure you're very aware of imposter syndrome um, is that something that you've experienced and would you like to share how you've dealt with that particularly with our, our women listeners Yes. So with, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because somebody asked me recently, uh, wow, you know, Lori, you've, you've done all these things and, and how does it feel? And I always say, it just kind of feels normal. I, I don't really, you know, each, each accomplishment is kind of just, okay, well, I did that. I did that for me. Uh, I didn't really do it for the, the, the hoopla or the, the, you know, the parade. Um, so it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the imposter syndrome. Um, we call it also, a, you know, Peter Pan syndrome that you're going to okay. wake up one day and, uh, it's all just been kind of a dream. Um, so I'm not really sure how your wife explained that, but, um, that's my it's lens on it. It, it. It's that, it's that feeling, Lauren, and, and I suffer from it and, 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 and many of our leaders suffer from it. It's, it's, what am I doing here? Am I really good enough to be here? Right. What, right. I, just having that self-doubt of, yeah, is, is this me? I've come from a, 
I've come from a, a tough place in, in the north of England. I'm not really meant to be doing what I'm doing. I should, I should not be working. I should be sat in my government-provided house. And I shouldn't really be out in Saudi Arabia teaching and, and helping lead schools. It's that feeling, Laurie. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do know what you mean, but I, I think I've worked so diligently to not fall into uh, that mindset because, um, it, well, you know, it's predominantly why I wrote the book, right? I think yeah. it's really important that we, we value uh, who we are and, and the work that we've done and, and where we are on our journey. And I think it's really important for women uh, to know that you do belong. You are exactly where you belong. And, and for women, I say, because we live in a, a predominantly male uh, society, especially in, in high leadership positions. And so we, we need to know that we, we deserve that seat at the table. We have something to bring to the conversation, something very meaningful, um, as do our male colleagues. So I, I look at this, you know, this society, this global society, and I'm, I'm very focused on equitable opportunities for all of us together. Um, and so the, the, the imposter syndrome for me is something that I try um, to, to, to work with other women on not falling into that and, 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 and changing the narrative to, I, I do belong, I, I am, and I can, and I will, and I, you know, um, yeah, that, that's great. That empowerment there, that comes back to some of your, your key points yeah. in leadership, isn't it? Is that you, you seem to have, have nailed it. It's then how do you pass on your knowledge then to other people to inspire them? And just give us an example of some of the things you, you do with, uh, with the women that you work with and, and practical tips to, to help people who, who do suffer with that bit of uh, anxiety about where they're at at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I would say nailed it might be a strong... Um, <laughs> I don't think you ever nail it. Do you? I it's, it's an ongoing process, isn't it? it? It's an ongoing process. It absolutely is a very focused, mindful process. Um, and I think the things that, that I do with, with my colleagues and my friends, um, they're small. I think the smallest shifts make the biggest difference. So, you know, when you see someone and you, and you say something kind to them, right, the, a, a, a kind word can change someone's day. So when you model those behaviors, I think the people around you uh, start to pick up on those behaviors. And so I believe in leading by pure example. And, and that is how I, I choose to, uh, to live my life. And um, I, I am hopeful, I, I should say I am confident because that's a more powerful word, right? That other people see. Um, the way that I speak uh, to others and, and hopefully they pick up on that. And, and so, so, and then it becomes this um, assembly line, right? So I, I model, then somebody else picks up on it, then they wind up modeling and it, it becomes this way of being, this way of being, yeah. yeah. So reading um, an article the other day by a doctor in the States, Kirsten Neff, she's uh, based in Texas. She does a lot of work around self-compassion. And she talks about parent modeling being the, the one thing that will allow children to, to develop a feeling of self-compassion a little bit more. If they see their, their parents being kind to them and to being kind to themselves, then, then that'll have a knock-on effect, which really rings true to what you're saying there. 
why why is it that in the 21st century we're still talking about um, equality with, with women in leadership? Why is that still a thing? Why why is this still something we're talking about? That is the question of the century. I think. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I feel like, again, it goes back to, you know, this is, this is the way it, it has been. Some of the research that I've done, um, you know, states that um, when, when people are asked to choose um, a leader, they 80% of the time they choose a male, right? And uh, some more research that's, that's in my book says that, you know, at the rate of change where we are right now with women moving into leadership positions, it will take until 2085 uh, for us to reach parity. So, um, you know, we, we have the, the schooling, we have the education, um, but I, I think it's, it's societal norms. Yeah, that's, I fully um, agree with you. Yeah. It, and it will happen, wasn't it, Laurie? It will happen because the talent is there and the intellectual capability is there. It's just taking time to change those norms. I, I hope so. And uh, I do believe that, that we are making progress. If you look at the COVID pandemic, uh, the leading countries, the countries who fared best uh, were led by, by female leaders. Um, and and yeah. that information's in the book as well. So, you know, and I don't want to say, you know, uh, I, I don't want to, to say that female leaders are bet leaders are leaders and we're all different and we all have something, a skill set to bring to the table. I think we need to look at instead of women versus men, I think we need to just come together as one um, in the, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? So, um, but you said something before, Lewis, you said uh, about self-compassion. I think it's really important that we do send the message, especially to young children, you know, that, that being selfless isn't selfish and um, self-care should be at the forefront, especially for us as leaders, right? If we don't take care of ourselves, um, then, then we can't serve others uh, to the best of our ability, right? And an empty, an empty pot, right? Yeah, no, good, good point. And, we're just going to wind it down now, Laurie, but it's going to link nicely in to, to what you just talked about in terms of when people choose leaders, they tend to go towards a man. So I'm, I'm going to ask you now, who would you go out for a meal with? Your three leaders in history, they could be dead or alive. Who would you choose to go and have that meal with? I knew you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> said, we love this question. They don't ask me that question. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I was, I was actually thinking of this earlier today. I said, well, yeah, if they do ask, what would I say? And this, there's so, there's so many ways you can answer this question. Um, yeah. I had dinner with Sir Ken and that was a, a wonderful um, experience. Uh, uh, talk about uh, imposter syndrome. But um, if I could go out to dinner, I, I think I would really like to meet with some of the, the, um, educational psychologists, right? Or, or educational theorists like, um, you know, Dewey or um, a Piaget or maybe even Albert Einstein and, and kind of just talk to them and Vygotsky and Bandura um, and, and just sit with them and, and ask them about, um, 
you know, their, their philosophies and their theories and, and ask for advice on how we can continue to carry, um, carry that through. Because sometimes I feel like maybe we sometimes lose sight of a child development and what's proper um, and, and how things should be done in the best interest of children. And I don't think it's done intentionally, um, but I would love to have dinner with some of those people, uh, Maria Montessori, and, and just speak about um, proper child development and, and, and how I could you know, carry that torch maybe um, you know, through the um, next decade. That, that'd make a brilliant podcast, Alan, wouldn't it? It would make unbelievable <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Lewis, we've got our finishing questions. Okay, so our podcast is called Infinite Leaders Live. Our whole sort of theory is around infinite learning. What does that phrase mean to you, Laurie, as an education, uh, as somebody in education, as an educator yourself and, and, and as a leader, what does infinite learning mean to you? The great question. Um, I feel like when we stop learning and we stop growing, um, what's, what's left but to, to wither and die, right? That's an Einstein quote, that one, isn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, uh, but, but how true and how powerful because, you know, we'll never know everything and we, we need to be open to always learning, always learning from each other, from the children, um, and, and so that's what infinite learning uh, means to me. And I quite love uh, the title of your podcast. And I was so intrigued uh, when you reached out. And, and I do want to thank you so much again for, for this incredible opportunity, this global connection. I feel like we will definitely uh, stay in touch and continue to learn with and from each other. Um, so thank you so much for that. Very welcome, Laurie. We'd, we'd love that. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out a little bit more about you, where they can order the book from, um, any little bits and bobs that would help our listeners just to read and research a bit more? Surely, that would be that would be wonderful. Thank you. Uh, you can find me at uh, Laurie Kerner, L-O-R-I-K-O-E-R-N-E-R-E-D-U.com. That's my personal website and uh, the, uh, the publisher's uh have the book available on there through amazon.com. So you can go to amazon.com if you want to purchase the book as well. Um, and all of my uh, other information, social media, et cetera, it's all on the website. So it's a, a one-stop shopping for uh, connections. And the book, actually, I can is out now, right? You can order that through Amazon and, and all decent bookshops. There it is. Right here. Yes. Hey, you, can buy yeah. that. you can buy that on amazon.com. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I'm so grateful to Codebreaker, um, my publishers, for, um, for believing that I can. And uh, I hope that other people take away uh, from the book uh, some inspiration and empowerment. And, and I hope they do reach out to me to share because uh, I love to hear. It, it's, uh, it's inspiring. And, and who doesn't want to be inspired? So. For sure. Laurie, thank you. Guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. We're also on all popular podcast uh, platforms. Please uh, do review, subscribe, um, leave us some feedback. Uh, we, we love to hear how we're getting on uh, and, and what you've enjoyed around our guests and the topics that we've discussed. So please do do that if you get the opportunity. And you can find everything that you need from us at theinfinitelearners.com. We'll see you next time. And thanks again, Laurie. Really great to chat. Thank, thank you, you so much. What a pleasure.